Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. I like to have a theme. And so uh, the theme that I want to explore this afternoon is uh, pain and transforming pain, our relationship to pain. Because uh, we're human beings. And biologically, it seems, we'll do anything we can to pursue pleasure. And when there's pain, uh, it's hard to stay with pain. And it's hard to relate to pain, especially because everything around us tells us that we should be happy and pain-free, and that aging should feel great. But also, if you have an interior life, then you know that uh, pain is going to uh, really hit you every once in a while. Because uh, you're sensitive not only to your own pain, because, for example, people will say stuff to you that's really hard to hear. Sometimes they're accurate, and sometimes they're not accurate. But either way, uh, it's wounding, because uh, your heart can bruise really easily. But, you know, if you're running around all the time and overeating and watching a lot of television, then probably you don't feel it as much because you're, you're a little number. But all of you are practicing and your practice is deepening and so you're going to start to feel more pain, actually, 
Isn't this the paradox of practice? I mean, you're going to feel less pain, but the other problem with practice is that when you become more attuned to what's actually going on in your moment-to-moment -moment experience, you start to tune in more to the pain of other people. And most other people's pain, you know, uh, is worse than your pain. And your ability to work with your own pain determines to a very large extent your ability to relate to the pain of other people. I think this a lot. I think about this a lot with regard to being wounded. You know, if you're wounded and you meet other people who are also wounded, you don't like them. Have you noticed this? If you have a wound and there's someone else who has a wound like your wound, but you haven't really opened up to the way you're wounded, then other people are just annoying. And you'd rather not hang out with them. But actually, when you have some pain in your life, Trungpa Rinpoche called this the raw spot. When you have a raw spot that you can open to without running away from it, then it motivates you uh, to then be more patient and more attuned to other people who also are raw. Does this make sense? Yeah. But if you can allow yourself uh, to tune into that in your own life, then other people are just uh, <coughs> objects to get away from. So uh, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha had something to say about this. <coughs> And so I wanted to look at this teaching, um, the Salata Sutta, also known as the Two Darts, uh, from the Samyutta Nikaya. So the Nikayas are a collection of teachings uh, that were um, codified, so to speak, orally, uh, after the Buddha's death. And um, they were... Uh, put down in a language called Pali. So, interestingly enough, the Buddha didn't know Pali. Uh, Pali was a language created after the Buddha died. And it was used uh, to document the Buddha's teachings because it was less formal than Sanskrit. Sanskrit belonged to the Brahmin men. And Pali is like Sanskrit without all the rules. When I learned a little Pali, the professor said, if you just learn Sanskrit and then you have two martinis, you get Pali. <laughs> Which is actually not true. Pali is really hard. But anyways, uh, Pali was more of the street language than Sanskrit was. Um, but recent scholarship shows that uh, Pali was created to document the Buddhist teachings. It's interesting. So... The canon of the early Buddhist teachings is called the Pali Canon. And so uh, right in the middle of it, we find this, this text. And the Pali Canon is organized in the strangest way. It's organized by the length of the discourse, not by the time it was given. So it's sometimes hard to get around in the Pali Canon. But anyways, if you wanted to look this up, this is from the Samyutta Nikaya. And there is a website called accesstoinsight.org and in this website they've digitized a, almost the entire Pali Canon 
and you can click on a sutta. So you can look up, you know, the two darts. And then when you get there, it will have multiple translations. All the translations that they know of in English are there. So you can, so it's great because you can look up one sutra, one sutta, and then you can see many different ways it's been translated. And that, that's a great resource. Uh, if you, for the, for the nerds in the room, we're going to go home and um, not watch Mad Men. Sorry, I'm outdated. I, I haven't even gotten to um, Breaking Bad yet. Oh, it's horrible. So, uh, the first part of the afternoon, I'd like to go through this teaching. And then the second part of the afternoon, I want to do some practical exercises around it. Does, does this sound reasonable? Are there any questions before we go forward? An untaught person, this is the Buddha speaking, experiences pleasant feelings, she experiences painful feelings, and she experiences neutral feelings. These are called the three baskets. And this is actually a meditation technique, is when you get calm in your meditation practice, and you pay attention to sensations in the body, you can start to notice how all sensations fall into one of the three baskets. They're either pleasant, painful, or neutral. There's no charge to them. A well-taught noble disciple likewise experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. In other words, Somebody who has no understanding of the teaching is going to experience these three things. And someone who's a well-taught disciple, you might think, oh, somebody's a really deep practitioner, they're not going to feel really negative feelings. They're not going to feel pain. But actually, the Buddha is saying, well, even if you're a fully awakened person, you're going to experience pain. So this is really bad news, because... Everybody thinks they're going to practice, they're going to go really deep, and they will not get menopausal feelings. They will not get menstrual cramps. That should be a book, you know, Mindfulness to End Menstrual Cramping. <laughs> I'm sure it's been done. Now, what is the distinction, the diversity, the difference that exists between a well-taught practitioner and somebody who hasn't been taught these teachings. When an untaught person is touched by a painful physical feeling, she worries and grieves. She laments, she beats her breast, she weeps and is distraught. She thus experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily feeling and a mental feeling. It's as if a man were pierced by a dart and following the first piercing is hit by a second dart. So that person will experience feelings caused by two darts. It's similar with an untaught person. When touched by a painful feeling, she worries and grieves, she laments, she weeps and is distraught. So she experiences two kinds of feelings a bodily feeling 
and a mental feeling. So, we all know this experience. We all know this experience. So, uh, you're walking along, you're alone, and then suddenly you feel some nostalgia. And then the nostalgia leads to a thought, oh, I used to walk on the same path uh, with so-and-so, with Jack. And Jack and I broke up. And now here I am walking on this path all alone. And then there is a painful feeling. Because I don't think it's possible to separate emotional pain and physical pain. If you experience the loss of somebody, a breakup or death, you know that feeling in your stomach when this happens? You could say it's emotional pain, but you know it as a phys- physical pain. But then we're organized that when we feel pain, we want to go for immediate sensual gratification. We want to gratify the senses somehow. So one way of gratifying the senses would be to go eat something and eat enough of it that we don't feel the pain anymore. Has anybody ever tried this? Yeah. Another way is to tell yourself, I'm not going to eat anything. And I'm actually going to not eat for the next few days until I feel sort of clean, you know. Has anybody tried this one? Yeah. Um, Or the other sense organ that we go to is the mind. And one way that the mind gets sensually gratified is by thinking. Okay? So in order to avoid the painful feeling, we create all kinds of stories around the painful feeling. And this is convenient because the more identified we are with the story around the painful feeling, the less we're going to feel the painful feeling. But there's a paradox. Because the more we identify and invest in the story of the painful feeling, the more that energy feeds the painful feeling. You see? So it doesn't actually work. And most of the time when we experience pain, this is the tendency. But of course it is, because pain is disorienting. And so we want to find a story to orient us. So in a way, what a teaching like this is doing is it's giving us another story that we can use to orient ourselves. But the intention of the story, the trajectory of this story, is to take us closer to the first dart. The first dart is unavoidable. You are going to lose people that you love. And then you know what's going to happen after that? You're going to fall in love again, and you're going to lose them again. A relationship ends, a career ends. Um, What is it that's so painful about endings is that it brings us in touch with the visceral reality of impermanence the story we've been telling about our lives, the image we had about who we are, the image we had about other people, um, doesn't match anymore the reality. But we're still trying to hold on to the image. So, 
At one level, there's a feeling of pain that's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. It's human life. And that's why I started by saying, let's not be idealistic. And let's see that the experience of pain is built into life. And the more deep you are in your life, the more rich your life is, the more meaningful your life is, the more you will feel pain. That's the first dart. There's nothing wrong with the first dart. It's not so bad. But when you try to get out of the first dart, you create a second dart. So in other words, the first dart is the natural world, is life. The second dart, we create. So it's like a person has been shot with two darts. Why do you need to add the second dart? This is what the Buddha seems to be saying. It's a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? I think we can all relate to this. So then he says, having been touched by that painful feeling, she resists it. And I like the, another translation is, she resents it. Has anybody had both those things? The resistance to the pain, but also, why should I have to feel this? It's his fault. Has anybody done this before? Yeah. So if you can't allow in what's actually showing up, one way to do this is you instead focus on the object behind the pain, which is the person who caused it. So I'm feeling pain. This is the story of divorce. Right? During divorce, it's hard to really feel pain of the, or loss or grief. So we just focus on how much we hate the other person. So much anger. And then we keep focusing on the other person, the other, everything they did wrong, every way they didn't meet our needs, every way they did this, that, and the other thing. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But only for a few months. <laughs> and if you have good friends, at some point they'll say, okay, it's enough now. Yeah. But what happens is, is the more you focus on the other person, the more it deepens your experience of the pain but it fixes the pain. So the pain doesn't shift, you see. So there needs to be some way of opening up to the experience of sadness or the experience of anger even, or the experience of pain without continually investing in the object that you think created the pain. Because actually, life created the pain. It's life pain. And maybe we should stop even saying to ourselves, it's my pain. This is called the bodhisattva path. So the path of a yogi is to capitalize pain. And instead of calling it my pain, we just call it the pain. And we open up to the pain. We read an article in the newspaper. You see something on television that's disturbing. You, you notice the devastation in our environment from our growth-based economic extraction model. And you feel the pain of it. How can you not feel the pain of it? 
you see? As opposed to, oh, it's their pain. But that, that's, that's not the yogi's path. The yogi's path is to see that there's pain in the net. And actually, that's one of the reasons why it's important to have community of spiritual practitioners. Because if you just have friends who watch sports and drink a lot, then when you get... Uh, I'm using divorce as an example. But when you get divorced and you go to the bar... You just hang out with people who are commiserating and complaining about how, you know, wrong your ex was. Have you, have you seen this before? Yeah. But actually, it's important to have spiritual friends who have enough courage and there's enough uh, uh, strength in the relationship uh, for them to remind you that what you're feeling is not your pain. It's actually just the pain. This is the pain. And then the pain can go deep enough that it softens your heart and opens you up. And that's what we're looking for. People who've been opened up. Because they're the people in the culture who have something real to offer. So, the Buddha says, under the impact... Oh, sorry. Um... Where then, it, then in the person who resists and resents that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance against painful feelings comes to underlie his or her mind. These are the sanskaras. So it, it tends to reinforce aversion. And it's interesting, the Sanskrit word for aversion is dvesha, which also means anger. So it's like, think of that as a spectrum, right? On one side of the spectrum is aversion, but actually when aversion is stronger, it's anger. (laughs) Under the impact of a painful feeling, she then proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. I would translate this as, gets seduced by the habit of going for sensual gratification. And why? Because... O monks, an untaught person does not know of any other escape from the painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. So don't judge people. You know, the people that you know who go for the heroin or go for the cigarette or go for their ninth marriage, it's okay. It's not their fault. They don't know another way to do it. Because look around. We're told that when you have pain, you should just take a pharmaceutical and make the pain go away really fast. And then we believe this. But then the problem is, is and if you know somebody who has terminal pain, or you've, you've been in a lot of pain, you take the pharmaceutical, and it helps you manage the pain, which is really, really important. But it doesn't get rid of the pain. So number one, it doesn't get rid of the pain. Number two... It doesn't do anything for the second dart. We're still trying to get out of it, you see. Then, in the person who enjoys sensual gratification, an underlying tendency gets set up to lust for pleasant feelings to be the baseline of their mind. 
In other words, we set up a pattern where we continually avoid feeling the pain because we lust after pleasure. And then we're addicts. All we want is the pleasure. We don't want to feel the pain. But the pleasure and the pain is life. It's life. He does not know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings, nor the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. In him who lacks the knowledge and underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral feelings come to underlie his mind. It's a little bit complicated. The word for ignorance, of course, many of you know, is avidya, which means, a means not, vidya means to see. Uh, vidya in Sanskrit is where you get the Latin word video, which is where you get the English word video. So a video means not video, not seeing, not seeing clearly, not being with what's actually going on. So what happens is, is when there's a lot of aversion to what's not pleasurable, we can't see clearly, right? In cognitive psychology, we call this a cognitive bias, right? When there's aversion, you, your, your, your perception is prejudiced so that you're not going to see clearly what's actually going on, right? How, you, we all know this, right? When we're trying to avoid pain, we're lusting after pleasure, we hate everybody. <laughs> or you can't stop seeing the fault of one other person. So let's go back to divorce. It's the theme these days. Um, when you keep focusing on the X, you know, there's this joke that I always tell that you can always leave a husband, but you can never leave an ex-husband. <laughs> I thought that was fun. Okay. The point being is that when 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 the focus keeps going to the object and not to what we're actually feeling, we, we create permanence with the pain. And it just stays there, right? Like an addict, it just stays there. And then we can't see clearly what's happening in our situation. The problem with seeing clearly is that it's very threatening to our sense of self. Because if we let in how we actually feel about the complexity of the situation, then we might start having feelings of love for the person that we hate. And that would completely screw up our self-concept. Because then we might actually start to feel like, oh no, I don't really hate them actually, I love them. But the feeling of love is so strong because we've been uh, repressing it. 
So it, it, this is all like mechanical. It's hydraulic. It's like hydraulics, right? So you keep repressing the love to keep the hate there to maintain a certain story about yourself, even though you think it's really about the other person. It's actually about you. And then, if you start to feel a little bit of this love, it scares you because it's been pushed down, so it comes up really strong. This is Freud's idea. He calls it the return of the repressed, which sounds like a, a horror film, doesn't it? <laughs> and Freud's idea is the same amount of psychic energy it takes to push something down is the same amount of hydraulic energy it will use to come back up again. So because you're repressing the love, you get a glimpse of the love, but when you glimpse it, you realize it has so much strength that wants to come in. So you need more anger to keep the strength down. This is a great way to lose weight. <laughs> because it, it takes so much energy that uh, you start losing weight. We call this the divorce diet. You heard about this? Yeah. If you really want to lose weight, you should just either get divorced or go to India and get dysentery. <laughs> Best weight loss program. So anyways... But the problem is, is when the warm feelings come, then it disorients the story we have about the other person. And when it disorients the story, we feel disoriented. And then we start to second guess ourselves, like, oh God, maybe I've made a big mistake, or, or what am I going to do, or I'm never going to love again, or... Uh, but actually, that's the key to forgiveness. That's the key to forgiveness. So forgiveness is the relinquishing of our opinion that keeps reifying our sense of self. And then an opening is there for us to grieve without projection. This all might sound really complicated, but it's actually all because of the second dart. The point being that we, we keep the second dart pinned in there. We do that. Nobody else is doing that. We do that. So that's why it's really important if you have a friend who's experiencing grief or loss to be able to spend a few months just letting them tell their story tell their story, tell their story. And then at some point, as a friend, your job is to stop enabling the story and to help them just feel what's going on in their heart. So if they're talking, they might say, yeah, I don't know, I you know, hate him so much still, and you know, he's off with another woman, and the whole thing, and and they're talking like this, and you're sitting at a bar together, you know, and drinking Sprite or whatever. And then while they're talking, you can just go, ha! <laughs> and then they jump up, you know. But it's great because then, can you feel that? Yeah, and then you just wake up, you know. And then they'll say, what? What was that for? you just say, I, I've heard you tell that story before. <laughs> yeah, and every time you tell it again, I'm going to yell. <laughs> <laughs> so actually next time you go to the sports bar and you hear someone yell 
You might think it's from the football game, but they're actually doing this practice. Yeah. But it's okay. It's okay if they get angry at you because you're the one that's there with them and you love them. Um, we're going to skip a couple paragraphs to the next page. Uh, then in him, it starts. Uh, then in him, who does not proceed to enjoy sensual happiness, no underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings comes to underlie his mind. He knows, according to facts, the arising and passing away of these feelings. He knows the arising and passing away of the desire for gratification. He knows the danger of escaping. When she experiences a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, or a neutral feeling, she feels it as one who is not fettered by it. Such a one, O monks, is called a well-taught, noble disciple who is not fettered by birth, by old age, by death, by sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. She is not fettered to suffering. This is the distinction, the diversity, the difference that exists between a well-taught person and an untaught student. It's so clear, isn't it? So are there any questions or comments about this before we uh, talk about how to actually do this? So we hold on to the second dark because it hurts so good. Yeah, yeah. That's a question I have all the time is, why do we love our suffering so much? It's like, we know, we know it hurts, but we don't want to let it go because we know it, right? We, we like to be in the world of the known. So even though we know it's not good for us, we, we hold on to it. So it's a familiar pain, and that familiarity is comforting. Exactly. How many of us have habits? We say, oh, that's this habit I do, whatever. But we're actually a little scared to go near it. And then we ask ourselves, why are we scared to go near it? Because we don't really want to change. Because we're using the habit as a landmark to under, to, 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 as a landmark to know ourselves. But actually, it keeps us spinning around in a, an eddy. So, uh, we could talk about this in terms of divorce. I like to think of this in terms of um, the environment. Where uh, it's so easy just to read the statistics about species dying or things like that. You know. But actually, to let in... Um, the pain of uh, the degradation of our environment. We do anything to avoid that. 
making up little political ideas or whatever. When you allow it in, um, it doesn't hang around so much. It comes in, it goes out, and we can have more clarity in our thinking because we're not bogged down by reactivity. So, any other questions or comments? We'll keep going. Should we keep going? Yeah. Okay. So over the years, I've done a lot of work with uh, clinicians and also uh, with people uh, who have pain. And so uh, this is a guided meditation uh, for working with pain. So what I would like to do is I'd like to read it out loud together. Uh, and then um, I'm going to uh, uh, give you some ideas about how to work with this guided meditation in your own life, but also with other people. And so we're going to do some role-playing with it and, uh, and see where it, where it leads us. So this is how it begins. This is written for somebody who's guiding somebody in pain. So imagine uh, you have a loved one in a hospital bed and they're uh, experiencing pain. And um, you're sitting next to them. So that's the audience that this is written for, the caregiver. So remember why you're practicing. So the most important thing is the intention. You're practicing to help the person who you're with, but also don't be idealistic. You're also practicing, you're doing this, you're sitting with them to help you. It's not just for them. If you are always uh, just trying to help others and the you is not included, then you uh, are going to burn out. That's, that's not how we do caregiving. Real caregiving has to have benefit to you also. To be with somebody when they're very vulnerable is actually a great privilege, isn't it? It's hard work, especially if there's siblings involved. But it's actually a great, a great gift. If you let it be a training for you also. So let your heart open to this aspiration. Gently bring your attention to your breath. Let your breath settle and become even and regular. Take as much time as you need to settle the breath. So that would be the instruction for the first day. Each paragraph is one day. That's it. That's the instruction for the whole day. That's what you work on. And maybe you would guide them through that like three or four times. Then the second day. Uh, start from the beginning again, and then you'll add this paragraph. Now bring your breath deep within your body. When you breathe in, feel how your belly rises. And when you breathe out, feel how the abdomen falls uh, gently to the spine. Gently merge your attention with your breathing as your body relaxes. So this is really important. It's not just following your breath, but it's using the following of your breath to relax your body. Let the breath be deep in your body. Uh, that doesn't mean let your breath be deep. It just means feel your breath deeply in your body. 
Give yourself time to bring together your attention and your breath, and do this for 10 breaths. And then maybe uh, you would check in with them after. So what, what was that like for you? What did you notice? You could talk about it. Next paragraph. When you breathe in, let the breath nourish you. And when you breathe out, softly say the sound, as though you're sighing. Let the body relax as you practice and continue this for at least 10 breaths. Gently bring your attention to your pain. So first we're just getting to feel the breath in the body and the body's relaxing. That's all you need for the first few days. Then we're going to add something, which is now we're going to take the breath and we're going to bring it towards the pain. Let yourself soften to your pain. Try to accept it without judging or fearing it. Aware of your pain, breathe into it, and on the out-breath, have the feeling of fully accepting your pain. So on the out-breath, just explore the feeling of letting the pain be there. Now merge your breath with your pain. Breathe into your pain and out from it. Breathe into your pain, be in touch with your pain. And breathing out, let go into whatever you're experiencing. Whatever you're experiencing is okay. And continue this for 10 breaths. Now, with your mind, explore the sensation of pain. Is it sharp or dull? Pulsating or penetrating? Is it focused or does it spread out from its source? Let yourself explore the sensation, the intensity, and the quality of the pain. Feel objective about the exploration of your pain. Feel objective. In other words, uh, try and notice the pain objectively. Not judging it. Not fearing it, if possible. This is very courageous. Give yourself time to really explore the pain courageously, fearlessly. On the in-breath, bring warmth to the pain. On the out-breath, soften your pain, accepting your pain. As you do this, be aware of any change in the pain sensation. And try this for 10 breaths. So this is really interesting. Because the closer you get to the pain, as the body relaxes, the more you begin to see the pain changing. Because pain's not a permanent thing. It's, It's not static. Now gently bring your awareness to your whole body. Moving out from your pain, let your awareness fill your whole body. Bring your breath and attention to the entire body. And be open to how your body is feeling. Notice if there's resistance. Notice if there's fear. Accept your feelings as you accept whatever your body feels like. You can just allow in whatever your body feels like. It's okay. Just keep staying with your breathing. And now take time just to be with your body. 
let your awareness flow out to your surroundings. Listen to the machines in the room. Listen to the fan. Listen to the nurses in the hallway. Uh, listen to the trucks outside the window. So you've established really deep awareness, but now open it up. So it's not just in your body. But notice the sounds of the hospital. Notice the sounds of the space. Uh, if anybody here ever spends time in a hospital, there's so many sounds. You know? The nurses shuffling, computers, so many different kinds of beeping and alarms. Uh, in the hospitals, you know, sometimes the doors are really loud when they open and close. Rest for a while with this expansive awareness. Breathe in the world around you. Breathe out into the world around you. Let a feeling of boundlessness arise with you as you breathe. And when you're ready to complete the practice, send whatever good that has arisen to others. So, for example, um, you can say, uh, you know, if people, if people are in the hospital for a while, sometimes um, they really start, they, they develop a friendship with one of the nurses. Do you notice this? Usually there's one they hate and one they like. <laughs> so maybe at the end of the practice, just uh, send the good of the practice psychically to the nurse or to the doctor that helped you. This is really nice to do. Or if you don't like anyone, to a bird outside the window. Um, what do you hear in this exercise? What do you hear in this gentle meditation? Gratitude. Gratitude? Yeah. yeah. I sense yeah. Um, not control, but not feeling so overwhelmed. Not mm -hmm. feeling so. This is this is happening to me. Yeah, allowing in the pain without fighting it, yeah. Right. So you hear in the background of this that we're using a different theoretical model, which is the two darts. That the first dart is inevitable, and the second dart we're constructing, and we can control that. And then, the, of course, surprises. Oftentimes, when you control that second dart, the first dart changes. Because the running away from the pain makes the pain worse. It's worse. You get to a point where maybe you can see it coming. You can dodge the dart. You can dodge the second dart. The second dart. Yeah. You see it coming. Yeah. Any other comments? Yes. I just have a question. I'm assuming this is for both physical and emotional pains. Correct, Some yeah. Some say it's an emotional pain, not like physical thing. Yeah. Um, I know sometimes you can tell somebody to bring up whatever is causing the emotional pain. They might feel it in a certain place in the body, but 
if you don't feel it in your body, then what you direct them is to hold that in their awareness and breathe yeah. it back. Yeah. So the key is... Um, encouraging the person who's feeling emotional pain to notice where in the body they're feeling their pain. Because there will be a place in the body where they're feeling it. And if they can't, then just start with, well, where in your body do you feel the support of the floor? And then where in your body do you feel your breath? Oh, I can't feel my breath. Well, how do you know you're breathing? And then they'll say, oh yeah, well I feel a breath a little bit in my belly. And you can say, oh, you know, I notice you're really uh, upset. Is there a place in your body where you feel the upset? No, 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 no. It's just so and so. Well, is there, is there anywhere in your body you feel holding on right now? So that you, you keep bringing them back to the body. So that's what we're encouraging here. So the thing is, is that most people who really have a, a deep pain, when it's strong, they have a hard time metabolizing it by themselves. So it's such a great gift when there's someone else there. I think of this as assisted meditation. And your job, being the person next to them, is just to hold them, hold them, so that they can experience what they can't experience alone. Because in no culture does anybody go through this alone. We all need support. And the worst thing you can do is start explaining to them why they feel the way they feel and give them advice. <laughs> Isn't that the worst? Yeah. And, and we all know this because actually when we're really having a hard time usually it's not the person who gives advice that we end up going to for help. It's the person who doesn't judge us. It's the person who can really listen. It's not the person who has a clever idea of what we should do. We go to a psychic, they have some good visions, but that's not what tends to help us process the pain. So, what I'd like to do is to uh, play with this exercise together in partners. And so what we're going to do is one person is going to lie down on the floor and is going to contact their own pain. So, either, so it's kind of like role-playing, except you're really going to try and practice it with something in you that's painful physical or emotional. And you're going to lie down and you're going to try to make contact with it. The person beside you is going to sit next to you and they're going to guide you uh, through the first uh, four paragraphs. So, um, Um, where it says uh, uh, towards the end of page 3 breathing out, let go into whatever you're experiencing, continue this for at least 10 breaths that's where you're going to end 
Does everybody see that? Yeah. You can just make a line there. Which one? Okay. Yep. Okay. Um, so, here's how I would like to start. You'll find a partner. Um, you're going to spread out so we have two rooms available. You're going to lie down, make yourself really comfortable. You don't have to lie down like in perfect Shavasana. Just like lie on your side or hug a blanket or like any way you want to lie down. It's okay. You know, maybe you want to put your legs up the wall. Do whatever you want. And um, then uh, communicate with the person. Where do you want them to be near you? Should they be like right beside you? Should they? Ha- should you have a little space? Do you want them to lie down next to you? Um, should they touch you or not? Uh, so just communicate about what you want. And then the person uh, is going to find their breathing who is guiding you. Maybe take a minute or two in silence. And then you're going to start talking. And if you get a sentence where it feels like, you know, that's not how I would say it, then make up your own words. Sometimes just spontaneously there's a better way of saying the sentence. And just go really slowly so you have ten minutes. And leave about two minutes. Um, You know what? At the two-minute mark, so after eight minutes, I'm going to ring the bell. And you'll just stop wherever you are. And then for two minutes, just give them a minute, about a minute to get up. And then um, they'll sit up with you. So, so that when I ring the bell, just know that you have two minutes to start to end and get up. So it's not startling. And then afterwards, we'll have time to discuss this. Okay? But let's not communicate with each other. Are there any questions about this? What does it mean, let's not communicate with each other? Oh, yeah. Like, maybe you finish after five minutes. You don't, I don't want you to get up and say, oh, yeah, that was really cool, but it wasn't <laughs> as good as the time we did it in Minnesota. <laughs> Um, if, if, uh, if you don't want to do it it's okay to be a witness which means you, you can sit just next to someone else if they're comfortable with it and just watch or just listen um, or just re- read this on your own if you feel like oh this is too intense I can't do this it's just an invitation to try it you don't have to, you don't have to jump in alright So, uh, find a partner. I'll ring the bell when it's time to start.